everyone and welcome to a new episode of Mind Unplugged. You're tuning in today for a fantastic episode about life and negotiation. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. Derek Gaunt. Derek is a lecturer, a coach, the author of Ego, Authority and Failure, which is an excellent book I have here by my side. Derek has a wealth of experience starting with 30 years in law enforcement, out of which 20 years as a member, team leader and commander of hostage negotiation teams in the DC area. He's been instructing people over the world on how to apply hostage negotiation tactics in their individual business environments. And now, without further ado, I would like to hear from Derek. Hi, Derek. How are you today? Gregos, how are you? It's good to be with you. Really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to do this with me. Thank you. Of course. Of course. So, Derek, I did cover a slight glimpse of your experience and background in that brief introduction. Yet, could you give us a little bit more information about your background and your experience and how you got here today? Well, 30 years in law enforcement. I started my career in 1988. That's when I first donned a uniform, a badge and a gun and started to protect the, the citizens and protect the Constitution of the United States of America, which was my charge. Nine years later, I became a hostage negotiator. Uh, and that opened up a world of learning for me. You mentioned to me that you like to continually learn well. Being in the discipline of hostage negotiation, it's a it, your school is always in session. It's always in session if you approach it correctly. And I, I immersed myself in everything that had to do with the psychology of interpersonal communications. And so I was a frontline negotiator for about four years before I got promoted to the rank of sergeant in 2001. And that's when I took over team leadership responsibilities. I got promoted again in 2004 to the rank of lieutenant, which meant that I was now mid-management and I was in command of the team. So as far as the authority on the team went, the buck stopped with me. So I went from actually carrying out negotiations to managing the negotiations effort on, the, on behalf of my 14-person team. And I met Chris Voss. He is the author of Never Split the Difference. He's the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group. I met him probably 2001 when he transferred from New York City to Washington, D.C. He was in the negotiation business. I was in the negotiation business. So our paths naturally crossed and we became fast friends and we haven't looked back. I've been with the Black Swan Group uh, since 2010 officially, and that's provided me the opportunity to travel around the globe teaching individuals and corporations how to apply hostage negotiation practices and, and principles to the business world. What did drive your, let's say, your choice for uh, hostage negotiation tactics I've and learning? Yeah, I've always been intrigued by people who had the ability to listen deeply and to say things to say specific things in a specific manner to elicit a specific response. That's always intrigued me. You know, I, like I said, I started my law enforcement career in 88, but I was a regular patrol officer for only 18 months before I moved to a specialized narcotics unit. And in that narcotics unit, we would interview people who were involved in, in narcotics related violations, but they always had information to minimize their exposure. They always had information about the people that they got drugs from or maybe some other crimes. And they're not always inclined to share that information with the police. And if I conducted my interview or my interrogation in a certain way, I learned very quickly that I could get them to trust me enough to give information that they in other circumstances would not. And so that has always been an interest of mine. And I knew that there was another level to being able to communicate like that, which is why in 94, I became a, a detective in the detective in the criminal investigation section. And that took my ability to interview people to a higher level. And so I was intrigued by that. And then when I found out about hostage negotiation, which was taking principles from interview and interrogation to just an, another level where you're really 
trying to move somebody, trying to get them to change their behavior, if you will. When I figured out that I could speak to somebody in a fashion to ultimately get them to do what I wanted them to do, it was a game changer for me. And as I mentioned, I, I haven't looked back since. I'm still um, a student of the, of the game. I'm still trying to learn as much as I can. You know, with the Black Swan Group, I do a lot of uh, corporate training. I do a lot of individual coaching, and there's never a time that I do an individual coaching or I do corporate training that I don't continue to learn something about myself and something about the overall human nature response. So basically this capacity of being able to communicate and gather the right information that you needed is something that was in you and triggered, let's say, your evolution in this field. Yeah, there was a, there was a latent interest and it was triggered by my participation in this field. But that also goes to support the notion that anybody can learn this. This is not something that, that I was born with. There was an interest, yes, but yeah. the techniques and, and how I do what I do, I was not born with. I was taught. And so the good news for people like you and your listeners is don't be afraid because it's out there for you. And if I can get my head around it, trust me, you can get your head around it too. I'm genuinely curious, how has your personal development influenced your career development? I believe there is a story behind this as well. How did I get to where I am now? It, it, it is all, it's all been, it's all been a matter of me staying hungry, right? Staying curious, always looking to learn, you know, you and I talked a little bit offline about the characteristics that make, that make a, a leader great. What is one of those characteristics? Curiosity as a leader, always assuming that you've got something to learn. If, if you assume you have something to learn and you go into every difficult conversation with that mindset, that, that goes a long way in to keeping your ego in check. You should assume, I don't know it all. I don't care how long I've known you. I could have known you for five years. And if you and I are going to sit down and have a difficult conversation, I need to go into that conversation assuming that there's something going on with you that I have no clue about. And I'm going to learn it as a result of this conversation. So personal development was successful for me because I, I tried to stay curious. I tried to assume that I didn't know everything. And that, that's one of the drawbacks for most leaders. They, there, there's, a, there's an insecurity. There's an insecure nature that they have, um, that they have to be infallible that they have to have all the answers. And, and the bottom line is your organization nor the people that report to you expect perfection. They do expect that you have their interest at heart. And one of the ways to keep their interest at heart is to stay curious. You were talking about curiosity and you were, you were also talking in your book about staying curious and going into a room like you don't know everything. And... Mm -hmm make everything basically negotiation is just a difficult conversation so that's how you right. portray it how for example easy or how how or how just how did you make that shift from having a difficult conversation into an adventure exactly as you presented also in the book yeah it's uh, you know because that's a good question thing to do you know it's, yeah exactly it's something exactly that, yeah and it's not it's not a, it's not an easy thing to describe how do you how do you do it yeah. Do you force uh, yourself to do it or do you just practice a lot until you kind of like fake until you make it? Or how did you, for example, make that shift? First of all, it's, it's, it's a force, right? You have to force yourself. You have to force yourself to, to change because, you know, when people start to get involved in this and we're going to try to change this in, in, in coming years, but when people first start to look at negotiations and difficult conversations, we're well into adulthood which means we've developed a certain skill set. We've uh, developed certain habits that fly in the face of what we teach here at the Black Swan Group. So you have to be forced into changing the way that you think. For example, in the US, you want to be a police officer. You apply, you go through all the requisite background checks, and you know we do our best. We're now not really all that successful from time, it seems, from time to time, but we do our best 
to vet the people coming in into the profession to make sure that we're not hiring racist or psychopaths or anything like that. And then they're sent, they send you to an academy, a police academy. Now, depending on the agency, you know, it can be, you know, three months long. It can be a year long, depending on who, who you're going with. But in the time that you're in that academy, the, the overall theme is you're going to be a problem solver. Your job is going to consist of you listening to a radio. You wait for them to call you on the radio. They'll send you to a location and they'll describe the problem to you. You're going to arrive at that location. You're going to solve the problem as quickly as possible. And you're going to write a report if necessary. Then you're going to get back into your car and you're going to wait for the next radio call. And you're going to do that over and over and over again for 10, 11 hours every day. And so you get conditioned. I'm going to go there, figure out the problem, solve the problem, get back in my car, do it all over again. And then sometime later in your career, you decide you want to be a hostage negotiator. And you come to me and say, hey, boss, I think I want to apply for a position on the hostage negotiations team. If I select you, now I've got to undo all of the things that you've learned about interacting with people. Because... In their previous world, it's bang, 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 solve the problem, solve the problem, solve the problem. In hostage negotiation, it's slow everything completely down. Now you're not going there to solve the problem immediately. Now we're going there to solve the problem by demonstrating to the person that we're dealing with that we understand what the lay of the land looks like from their perspective. And that's hard to do sometimes with some people. Some people wash out, which is why everybody comes on in a uh, probationary status. So we can see if they're a fit because quite frankly, some people are, are not a fit, but the ones who are not a fit, they have the most difficulty in forcing themselves to change the mindset. So it's discipline. It's actually saying to yourself, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be curious. That'll keep it top of mind for you. For some people, it comes easy. Some people, it takes a little bit longer. But yes, to answer your question, you have to force yourself to do it. Those who are predisposed to tactical empathy have a little easier time doing it. Those who are not, you know, it it takes some work. But everybody, if they're willing to learn, can be taught. Right. So basically, what you're saying is that as long as, for example, we sort of even like create like a mantra out of this idea of curiosity, like I am curious, I, I will be curious once I enter into that room and I am curious even right now, I will do whatever I can. And I promise to myself that I will be curious in this conversation, even though I like the person or not, because this is also a matter of, you know, uh, where the ego, for example, can intervene. Like, I don't like this person, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I don't care that much, you know, or right. there are many things that can come in. And I will, I will go to one of the other questions that I have for you. In the book, you mentioned that we should manage ego as an emotion. I want you to elaborate a bit on that because I'm really curious on an expanded view on, on this idea. Ego is not 100% evil. Ego got you to your position today. It's unchecked. Ego. It's ego that is, that allows you to to run run amok. That is a problem. And ego as an emotion being a problem is for many. Ego is born out of insecurity. We talked about that earlier. When you are insecure, what does that make you automatically? It makes you automatically defensive. And we get defensive when we are threatened. When we are threatened, that small cluster at the base of your brain that has kept us alive for thousands of years with the fight or fight response kicks in. And whether you choose to flee or whether you choose to fight, negative emotions have now been dumped into your brain. And that impedes your ability to think. When your amygdala activates, what's supposed to be going on in your prefrontal cortex has now been stunted. There's now an obstacle in the way. There's an impediment. And so 
when I talk about dealing with ego as an emotion, understanding where it comes from, the ego is in response to a threat. And threats are always managed by us defending ourselves. The threat also always produces a negative emotion and negative emotions impede our ability to think. So in, in, in layman's terms, when your ego is allowed to run unchecked, you're not as smart as you otherwise would be. You're actually dumber than you otherwise would be. And so understanding where that ego is coming from will help you to tamp it down and keep it in check and only have it rear its head when it's absolutely necessary. The problem is most leaders don't realize that it's not absolutely necessary 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People want to see you as a human being. And one of the fastest ways to demonstrate that you're just a human being like anybody else is to lend somebody an empathetic ear. Because when you look at it at its very essence, human beings, you, me, everybody that you know, everybody that I know, they want someone else to understand what it is that they're going through. They want someone else to understand what the lay of the land looks like from their perspective. They want someone to understand these. This is my environment. This is my worldview. This is what I'm going through. And when you do that for another person, they feel good. Listening is the cheapest and most effective concession that you can make from one person to another. And when you do that, you're giving them a hit of dopamine. You're giving them a hit of oxytocin. It feels good. They may not be able to articulate what it is that you're saying and why or doing and why it feels so good, but they know that they do. For example, you're, as I'm going through this explanation of ego as an emotion, you're engaged, you're nodding your head, you're encouraging me to keep going. And that feeds me. Just that simple gesture of nodding the head shows me that you're in tune, you're listening and even though I'm a negotiation instructor with the Black Swan Group, it makes me feel good to know that I have your attention. And all you're doing is smiling and nodding your head. You're, you're, you're contributing nothing to this. And I'm going on and on and on and on because you're stoking that need of mine to be heard and to be listened to. And if leaders would keep that forefront, top of mind, that ego will stay in the backseat until you're ready for it. Right. That's a great example. And now that we're at this subject, I would like to ask you to also explain a little bit what is the difference between empathy and sympathy? Because these two can be very easily confused, you know, and somebody may be, uh, you know, trying to be empathetic, but they come up as sympathetic. That's a, that's a great question. If you look in the dictionary, the two definitions, they're almost identical. It's hard to, to see what the difference is. And that's why we threw in tactical in front of empathy. Because it's a deliberate attempt on our part to understand what's going on with the, with the other side. And a, a deliberate attempt. Sympathy is not a deliberate attempt. Sympathy is, is tantamount to, to emotional empathy, which is feeling what they feel. And you don't really... You don't really need to feel what they feel in order to demonstrate the type of empathy that we're talking about. Sympathy tantamount to emotional empathy, and that is a subjective state that's brought on by emotional contagion. You know, emotional contagion is if you started to tell me a story right now, and it was a sad story, and you started to get a, a lump in your throat and your eyes started to well up with tears that would have an effect on me. I would feel sympathy for you. I would start to get choked up. I would start to compare your story to a story that was traumatic in my life. And that is what sympathy is. It's, it's, it's the drive to feel what they feel. You don't need to feel what they feel to demonstrate that you understand what they're going through. And that's the main difference. Tactical empathy is a deliberate attempt on your part to recognize their perspective, but more importantly, to verbalize that recognition. Sympathy, think of it this way. Sympathy 
is walking in their shoes. You've heard that before. You got to walk right. a mile in their shoes to understand what they're going through. No, you don't. You need to see through their eyes what they're going through. You don't need to feel it. You just need to see it, identify it, articulate it. And that's that's the biggest difference. You don't need to feel what they feel in order to, to demonstrate empathy. And to your point earlier, it's not about liking the other side. It's not about agreeing with the other side. In fact, you may not be able to stand the sight of the other side. All of that is irrelevant. Put your desires, your needs, your wants on the back seat for a good portion of the conversation. Let's really figure out what's driving the behavior of the other side. And while we're on this point, I wanted to make sure I highlighted this. You notice I made a distinction between identification and articulation. Identifying what's going on with the other person is easy. Articulating it is where most of us falter for whatever reason. We're, We're afraid to speak what we see. We're afraid to share with them. Here's the data you're giving me. This is what I think is going on because we're afraid to offend. We're afraid we're going to be wrong. We're afraid they're going to look at us like we have two heads. And so we don't, but you do more damage than good when you don't articulate it because they don't know that you understand because you haven't said anything. Right. And so your subconscious is going to tell you exactly what's going on with your counterpart, your subconscious brain. You know, people have um, tried to duplicate the computing power of the human brain for decades, and they cannot do it. There's some pretty powerful computers out there, and none of them have the capacity of the human brain. Your your conscious brain processes about 40 bits of information per second. Your subconscious brain processes 20 million bits of information per second. And so what is that? That's you knowing something without knowing how you know it. You know, people call it gut feeling. I had a gut feeling that this was going to happen. Well, it's not really a gut feeling. That's just your supercomputer processing all of the environmental data that's going on with this person. And so what's your challenge? Your challenge is how do I speak that into existence? I need to speak it in. I need to speak it because they need to know that I get it. And so Take away here, trust your intuition, trust your gut. It's kept you alive for thousands of, of years. Even in difficult conversations, it's not going to let you down. Articulation, for example, is it sort of a labeling or is it labeling? Like yeah, trying it could be. to inc- yeah. like empower or diffuse a, a negative state or a positive state. Like, for example, I see, let's say, for example, that you are very happy right now. And I just label the fact that you're, you you seem to be very happy right now. You seem that you, you sound like this thing is making you very happy that you're talking about. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Or or even going deeper than that, having fun with it. it sounds like you just you just won a million dollars today. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and they'll say yeah. and they'll say, no, nah, I didn't win a million dollars, but. Uh, like. <laughs> the repairs on my car are not going to cost as much as I thought. So I'm having a pretty good day, right. you know? And so what have I done there by labeling that, even though it was a wrong quote, wrong label, I got more information, right? Now I know exactly what's the cause of this happiness. I didn't have to pay that much for my car to be repaired. And it's important to, to remember that there are presenting dynamics and emotions in every conversation. And then there's latent dynamics or emotions. And so if I were to say to you, I can't believe she did this to me. She slept with my best friend in my bed, in my house. This stinks. I hate her for it. This is killing me. How would you label that to demonstrate to me that you understand what I'm going through. This is, a, I think this one is, a, this one is a bit more difficult than the one that you shared in the book. So you seem that trust meant a lot to you and your trust has been betrayed by both your Boom. friend and Boom. your partner. Boom. Did I say any of that? Did I say my trust had been betrayed by both my friend and my wife? No. That's what you heard, though. 
That's your supercomputer. The words I used was, she slept with my best friend in my house in my bed. It stinks. I hate her for it. This is killing me. What you heard was your trust has been betrayed. And as been by extension, you have been betrayed. And I never used trust or betrayal once in that statement, but you picked up on it. And that's what I mean by being able to go after not just the presenting dynamic or emotion, but what is beneath it. Because believe it or not, people don't always say what they mean. And they don't always want or they don't always ask the question that they want the answer to. And so your job is should always be any leader's job should always be not being so concerned about what was said or what was done, but why was it said? Why was it done? Because there's usually another message beneath that. And that goes back to curiosity. Right. If I go into these conversations, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on the hunt for things that are not being said. You know, the, the exercise that's in the book, the exercise that you've probably seen online, I want a car in 60 seconds or she dies. What is that person really saying? Now the surface level, the presenting dynamic is all right. Sounds like you, you, you want a car in a minute. Okay. Well, yeah, that's what I just said, but why did I say it? I said it because I'm trapped. What happens when you're feel trapped? You become afraid yeah. and you want something, you want a way out of it because you've got something to live for. Those three things are all hidden within that statement. I want a car in 60 seconds. And so instead of getting all upset or concerned about the fact that, oh my gosh, if we don't get him a car in 60 seconds, that woman's going to die. What else is he saying in there? And so that goes back to being curious and going after not so much the presenting dynamic or emotion, but what's behind it. What's the latent? What are they not saying with the words that they use? This is the same. I mean, it's a similar example to the one you shared also in the book with Mike and Steve. When these two, for example, were trying to rob a, uh, it was a pawn oh, shop, yeah, right? Yeah. Pawn shop. Uh-huh. And there were like five people inside. And then Dana was the one that was handling the conversation with uh, with Mike. Yeah. And the way it handled it, it was just brilliant. It was fantastic. Like the, the, the way she, uh, he, sorry, he cracked up Mike. And Mike was brought to tears and he realized, mm-hmm. I mean, 17 years of his life were basically spent in penitentiary, like state penitentiary, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he, he has some family issues. His wife was uh, sending me out to get a job or something. It, it was, there was a lot on his mind. Yeah. There was a lot on his mind. Yeah. And how Dana tapped on that was just brilliant. He, I, I believe in a way he, I mean, he just invited the people like, like, please go, you know, like the, the, the hostages. He just like asked them, please leave, you know, here, take your purse. You forgot your purse, mm-hmm. your pocketbook. Or, yeah. And it was, it, it was, a, yeah, it was actually that example really, it really stuck with me. It was a very, very good one, you know, very yeah, good. It, it, and, and, and Dana exactly. did a, he, he did a very good job on it, but what did he really do? He listened. Listened, yes. That that's what he really did. It was and two so, plus one, right? Yeah, he did a lot of quick two plus one, a lot yeah. of labels, a lot of mirrors, a yeah. lot of dynamic silence. Exactly, yeah. And because this was probably one of the first times, not the first times, one of the only times in Mike's life that somebody actually listen to what he was going through. That was 17 years of pent up pain, disappointment, failure that he has never been able to express to anyone. And when Dana started to listen from that perspective, what happened to Mike's emotional level? It started to come down. And when the emotional level starts to come down, rational thinking 
starts to increase to the point where Mike says, these people have nothing to do with why I've had such a difficult time in my life. I'm going to let them go. That's huge. Now he went from cussing us out, threatening us, threatening the hostages to someone who's crying now and opening up his soul and talking about the very real challenges that he had in his life. And so, yeah, with labels, mirrors, and particularly dynamic silence, just creating a void in the conversation to let the other person fill was huge in that particular incident. And I'm convinced that that's the only reason why we got everybody out was because of the way Dana just acted as a sounding board for Mike. And in the story, the turning point, at least for, from my perspective, was when he, he tells him, my name's not Mike. Yeah. It's, it's Keith. That's huge. That's, that's when you know rapport has been established, when somebody, because our, our identity is something that we cherish and we don't give it out freely. You know, if I were to see you walking down the street and you don't know me, and I say, Dragos, and I extend my hand. The first thing that goes through your mind is, who is this guy? I don't recognize him. He's forcing me to, to extend my hand, to shake it with him. I'm a little uncomfortable now. And it's just, it's an innocuous interaction between two people. But in that moment, you're not sure if you want to give your true identity because you don't know where I'm coming from. And so when you do, when we do surrender our identity to another person, it's a clear indication that we trust you, at least on some level. And that's what happened in the Mike slash Keith case. Right. Derek, I want to come back a little bit to what we uh, began discussing in, uh, at the beginning of the episode. I had a question for you on what, for example, I mean, you're a person that I believe in all these years of experience and in all these years of Uh, applying the skills, you had your moments of doubt, you had your moments of perhaps even failure or, you know, rejection in some cases. What is your approach and how do you negotiate with that sense of failure and rejection without eroding your sense of self? Yeah. So I'm going to sound like a broken record, but again, it goes back to, to mindset, right? Part of the mindset is you're not perfect. In fact, when I was running the team, I told my people that you guys are going to make mistakes. It's just, it's inevitable. We're going to make mistakes. I just want every mistake that we make on a subsequent job to be brand new mistakes. I don't want them to be old mistakes. Mistakes are good because they're teaching tools. But if we are continually seeing the same mistakes, then we've got Um, another problem. So uh, part of it is just accepting the fact that you're going to make, that you're going to make mistakes. Even in the, in the moment, you may say something that you regret for whatever reason, own it and never underestimate the currency of an apology. That's a hard thing for some leaders to do is apologize because they view they view an apology as an admission of of guilt or of wrongdoing and it's quite the opposite it's admission of i'm a human being and so to answer your question it's it's all about mindset understanding that you're not going to be perfect you do something in the moment you apologize for it in the moment and you stick to your training your training will never fail you as long as you trust it, it'll never, it'll never fail you. In fact, in, in certain instances, when we were working as a team, we inside the, wherever we're conducting the negotiation, you'll see uh, dry erase boards all over the room. And we're, we're, we're capturing notes on those dry erase boards. And one of those dry erase boards, I will go into there and I'll write at the top of it, stick to your training just to keep that top of mind for them. Uh, because, I know for a fact that those team members are going to go through some challenges with dealing with the other person. They're going to go through some challenges dealing with me because I'm going to be putting pressure on them to do one, two, and three. The bad guy is going to be putting pressure on them to do A, B, and C. 
and they've got a, you know, they're blade running. They're trying to keep me happy. They're trying to keep the bad guy happy. And sometimes it's one of the most difficult positions to be in, but they know that going in and they'll look up at that board and they'll say, oh, that's all I got to do is stick to my training. Training will not fail you. Now getting a bit in a more professional, let's say aspect, for example, at least in my case, I want, I have some questions for me from my professional life mm -hmm. that regard these skills. So for instance, I, for example, as a foreigner, and I have many friends around that we were asking ourselves the same questions. So we found out about Black Swan Group. We were really into it. We got really into it. We loved it. Yet we had some difficulties, for example, bringing it about like these skills, bringing like the Black Swan method into our real professional world. And this is the first question. Is there a difference between a native English speaker and a just a general English speaker in matters of comprehension of the language when it comes to using these skills? Of course, of course. If English is your second language, you're already behind the eight ball. Just because things get lost in translation, you hear whatever you hear in English, you translate it into your native tongue and you try to formulate that response in your native tongue. And then you're thinking to yourself, uh, that may not exactly work in English. I may have to switch this with this. And so what does that do for you? It expands your time. Right. However, the skills that we espouse are not based on ethnicity it's not based on culture. It doesn't, it's not based on what your skin looks like. It's not based on what your sexual orientation is. It's based on the human nature response. And that human nature response dictates that negative emotions, negative dynamics drive decision-making and behavior. And it doesn't matter where you come from, which is why hostage negotiators in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, in the Middle East, North America, South America, they're all trained in the same skill set. They get the same base level skill set training across the board. Why? Because it has nothing to do with what they look like. It has everything to do with the fact that they are a biped mammal with a respiratory system. And as long as you're dealing with a biped mammal with a respiratory system, the skills work. It's not a matter if they impact everybody, because we know from trial and error that they impact everyone. The degree of impact may be different for different people. However, what we try to encourage and we, what we try to focus on more is the delivery of the label or the mirror. How are you delivering it? Do you sound like you're rehearsed? Do you sound like you're a robot? You sound like you've committed something to memory and now you're just regurgitating it. Or are you genuinely into a conversation with another person? You see, I could give you all of our skills in the black swan skill set. And if your delivery is terrible, it doesn't matter. You're going to fall flat on your face. So delivery, tone, projected sincerity are all more important than the actual skills that you use. And so don't forget, at the end of the day, you're just in a conversation with another person. So think of that conversation as a soup or a stew. The black swan skills are the seasoning for that super stew. You never use too much pepper. You never use too much salt. You use just enough to make it taste good. You want the conversation to taste good. And so you put it in where it fits. And as long as you're delivering it in a manner that shows a genuine concern, affinity, and curiosity about what's going on with the other person, the language barrier thing is, is not going to matter. Because even though they have something else as their native tongue, everything else internally is still the same. They're still yes. a human being. They still want to be understood. Yeah. And so we try to steer people away from getting caught up on cultural differences. Yeah, there are some nuances that you probably should be aware of, but there are, what, 190 countries on the planet. If you tried to memorize what's culturally appropriate in every one of those countries, that's all you'd spend your time doing. You'd never talk to anybody. Right. And so what's a hack? What's the easier way to get to that? Just deal with them as a human being. 
And so when I go, for, we talked earlier offline about my travels to Europe. I traveled to Europe to a business school in Frankfurt to teach black swan principles to members of the China Development Bank. Get your head around that for a second. I don't speak Chinese. I don't speak German. And most people can't speak black swan. Right. <laughs> and so we've got three different languages going on in this room. And I tell you that it did not matter that I did not speak German. It did not matter that I did not speak Chinese. They got the message. They understood where I was coming from. And I watched over the course of three days how they took what I gave them and they put it into practice in real world, not real world, but real case studies from their world and watch them negotiate. And for me, that was an eye opener because I'm an English speaker. So I'm imparting this knowledge to Chinese people. I'm giving my presentation in English and then I have to pause and then I have to listen to the interpreter. And then the interpreter is going back and forth with me and saying that word doesn't really translate into Chinese. Uh, is there another word that I could use? And so she, she did have to do some, some juggling of yes. the terms. But while it took longer to get the message across, the message was not lost. And so my, my takeaway from that is that it doesn't matter because those Chinese executives from the China Development Bank were human beings. Beautiful. Yeah, I understand. So thank you. Thank you for this. I mean, this, is, this has been a question since the, since the moment I opened the Black Swan website the first time and uh, your book and Chris's book. Mm. It's just it's a matter of keeping an open mind. Yes. The easy I, I, thing yeah. is, is to the, the easy way out is say, ah, that's not going to work with people from Iran. Okay. And you know that because why? Because you've tried it? No, no, no. I just know it wouldn't work. Well, that's that's silly. You're 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 compromising with yourself and you haven't even yeah. engaged these people. You've already assumed they're going to say no or have an adverse response to you, and you haven't even gotten to the table. And now you know, the 12 things that you wanted to talk to them to about, you've whittled that down to three. You started negotiating with yourself before you've gotten at the table. And if there's one thing that drives me absolutely crazy with coaching clients is when they say, I can't say that because that's going to be a non-starter. You don't know until you know. That's the bottom line. When you're in a maze, in a, an actual maze, how do you know that the path that you are on is a dead end when you're inside the maze? How does a, a mouse, when it's trying to find the food, how does it know that it hit that it has a dead end on the path that it's on? It has to hit the dead end. That's the only way that the mouse is going to know. I need to turn around and go another way. Same thing with negotiation. Don't compromise with yourself before you even, you know, you're you're from a communist country and I'm from a, a capitalist country. Don't assume that we cannot connect on a human level, because I tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. And Derek, you also brought up in your book as well, the three personality types, yeah. the accommodator, the assertive and the mm -hmm. analyst. Yes. And I tried, for example, like I studied the explanations and the descriptions, the characteristics of, uh, of the, uh, of these three uh, personality types quite deeply. And I try to, you know, portray it on, let's say, the people close to me and see like, okay, how does this person, for example, how, like, according to this, where do they fit? Mm -hmm. And I found like, I have one person in my life that I feel he is like a mix of analysts and assertive. And I wanted to ask you, does this exist? Can this be a mix? All right. So let me say a couple of things about that. First of all, can there be a mix? Technically speaking, you are who you are when you're threatened. When the stakes are high, you've got something significant hanging in the balance, and I come in and I start figuratively smacking you in the face. When I come into the room and I immediately start attacking your character. I start attacking your integrity. I start attacking your ability to crunch the numbers. 
you're going to have a defensive reaction to that. And so that defensive reaction is going to cause you to, as we talked about earlier, fight me back or figuratively, if not literally, leave the conversation. And so to your question, can you be an analyst or an assertive? Analyst and assertive, it's a great question because they are two sides of the same coin. Assertives can't stand analysts. Analysts can't stand assertives. We just, we, we don't, we don't like each other. And so that may be what's giving you pause when trying to evaluate this person that works quickly with you. So when you're trying to determine which one they actually are, we're talking about what is their default, not who they are during the normal business day, because during the normal business day, we, we know that we have to borrow from all three of those in order to make our job easier. I'm not talking about who you are when things are going well. Right. I want to know who you are when things are going terrible, when the house is burning down and you've got seconds to grab the dog and, and your important papers. Where, where do you go when I come into the room and I punch you right in the face? Are you going to fight me back? Are you going to say, I don't, I'm not doing this. This is a waste of time. I'm leaving. Or are you going to try to make friends? And those are the three personality types. I don't want to know who you are every day. I want to know who you are when you're faced with that grizzly bear. And, and this is the this is one of the analogies that I use in the, in the basic course. When you're trying to determine who you are, when you're trying to determine which one your coworkers or your family members are, think about it in terms of this. If you are hiking in the woods and you round the bend on this path and on this path sits a grizzly bear, the assertive is going to take out a hunting knife about this big going to look at that bear and say, I might not win this fight, but when it's over, this bear is going to know that he was in a fight with me. That's the assertive because the, and the bear is the threat. The analyst, the analyst, same path, same bear. The analyst says, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I put in these pre-plotted paths in my GPS unit. I'm going to pull that out. I'm going to find the closest path. I'm going to take that path. I'm going to go into the bush for about a hundred meters. I'm going to climb the biggest tree I can find, take out my rifle. And I'm going to shoot the bear from a distance. That's the, that's the analyst, the accommodator, same path, same bear tells the bear, you know what your problem is? No one understood you as a cub. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to take you home and introduce you to my family and get you a hot meal. That's, that's the accommodator. And so who are you when you are faced with a threat? And all of us default to one of those three. And so the takeaway for you and your listeners is those are three categories. We have done exercises anecdotally that suggest that the world breaks up neatly into thirds. And what that means for you is there's a 66% chance that the person you're engaging with as a conflict management style that's different from yours. And so if you if you have labeled yourself as being an analyst, there's a two-thirds chance that the person you're engaging is either assertive or accommodator. And you need to understand what do those two look like? What's more important to them than actually making a deal? All three have something more important to them than actually making a deal. For the assertive, it's to be heard and respected. That's it. The deal, the deal can get blown up. And you guys can walk away and not come to an agreement, but they're okay with it as long as you heard them and you know that he's the man. That you that you you bow down and you you kissed his ring during the course of this negotiation, and he's good with it. For the analyst, it's data and information. As an analyst, I want to go. If the deal goes bad, I'm good with that because I'm smarter because of it. I was able to confirm the data I already gathered, and I gained some new information, so I'm good. For the accommodator, it's the relationship. They don't care whether or not the deal gets made or not. As long as you and I are still friends, it's cool. And so understanding their perspective will help round out your ability 
to to influence them. If you understand who you are and who they are, because when there is an impasse, a lot of those, a lot of that impasse is due to the fact that there's been a failure to appreciate the different conflict personality styles. Derek, thank you so much for your time today and for the great knowledge you shared with us. And after this chat we had, definitely, first of all, I understand your book much better. So thank you very much for that. that. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't got Derek's book, Agree of Authority and Failure, you can get it on Amazon. I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic book. The second edition of Derek's book was released this year in October. You can find the book on Amazon and your nearby bookstores. This new edition contains some bonus material dedicated to parents. Any new, for example, trainings or courses that you were, uh, you were giving? Oh, gosh. Well, you did the N9. There's a, there's a caviar course that we have out there. There's in the, uh, Navigating Difficult Conversations. Uh, there's a course that we do quarterly when things go wrong. And there's also Leading More Effectively with the Black Swan Skills. I am the lead on. And uh, we have also Advanced Tools for Tactical Empathy, which is a, an advanced course we have just put together. So all of those are available, blackswanltd.com. There's a listing of those courses and availability. And I would encourage everybody who's interested in peeling back the layers of the onion to try to find out more about how it is that we do what we do and what we can do for you to reach out to us via the website and take advantage of it. And there's, there's plenty of free stuff there too. Derek, what is the best way everyone can get in touch with you? I'm on the gram. I'm on IG, so so you can hit me up at Derek M. Gaunt on Instagram and and LinkedIn. Those are the two that I dabble in the most. Um, I'm not a big Twitter fan, and and I don't get on Facebook all that often, but you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn. Derek, thank you again for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on. And, well, I wish you all the best. In your, um, in your work. I'm sure you got a lot of eager students to learn from you. And I hope that new ones will follow. And well, you get the word out and uh, help me in that regard. Definitely, 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 definitely. I would be more than happy to do that. Perfect. For now, I will put all the links how to contact you uh, in the description of this episode so people can learn more about the uh, environment where you apply your knowledge and uh, experience. Perfect. Thank you, Drago. Thank I you, appreciate Derek. the invite. Thank you so much, Eric.